You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And of course, it's not just the two of us today. We're very happy to have back on the podcast, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and Resident China Expert, Shannon Tiezi. Thanks for joining us, Shannon. Always a pleasure, guys. Terrific. And as listeners can probably tell, whenever we have Shannon on, uh, there's usually a big China discussion in store. And I know um, I've got a lot of emails from listeners about this is why haven't you done anything on Hong Kong this summer? It's not because we don't care about Hong Kong, quite the opposite. It's just been um, very difficult to find a moment amid these fast moving protests to build a structured podcast discussion around. And finally, um, this week in mid-August, um, the big question lingering around Hong Kong that I think makes for a, a good starting point for the discussion today. We'll talk a bit about the broader issues surrounding the the Hong Kong protests that have been ongoing this summer. Uh, but the big issue is the possibility that China might intervene. That's been on a lot of people's minds um, that we might see, if not a repeat of 1989 Tiananmen Square, uh, we might see a very different kind of Chinese crackdown. And certainly there has been a lot of signaling going on with the People's Armed Police gathering in Shenzhen in a very visible way, visible from overhead satellites, visible to foreign media being allowed to report on on their presence. Uh, so we'll begin the discussion there. Um, and Shannon, I wanted to just get your kind of open-ended view on, on, on how we should really think about the issue of China intervening in these protests that have now been going for more than two months. They began with a very precise objective of having the extradition bill killed, and now the protests have morphed, as so many movements like this do, into a broader um, into broader questions of simply political discontent about one country, two systems, uh, which is obviously, I think, a major red line for the Communist Party. So so how are you thinking about the possibility of uh, the party intervening here? Um, so I actually wrote an article about this earlier this week. And my thought is that it's unlikely, but we absolutely cannot rule out the possibility of Beijing actually sending its armed forces, um, most likely the People's Armed Police, as you mentioned, which is the paramilitary rather than the full-on People's Liberation Army. Mm -hmm. um, this, this would essentially be a disaster for Beijing to take this step. Um, you know, you're probably looking at having to declare martial law in Hong Kong and potentially the end of the two systems aspect of one country, two systems. And that would have huge ramifications for Hong Kong's economy. Um, you know, if the Chinese government is directly taking control over this special administrative region, countries like the United States aren't want, going to want to continue to give it special treatment in terms of customs and, um, you know, exports and things like that. So I think there are a lot of reasons for China not to do that. And also, as I wrote more about in my article, there are a lot of less escalatory tactics that China can use to try and diffuse or discourage these protests. Um, you know, all the rumors that China is paying triads, you know, Hong Kong gang members to attack the protesters would be one example of this sort of like gray zone tactic being applied to the Hong Kong protests. Um, something else that's important to keep in mind, though, is that when we're talking about the signaling from the PAP and the PLA, this is not just for 
Hong Kongers. Obviously, I think China's government is trying to send a warning to the protesters in Hong Kong. If we wanted to, we could come in and put you guys down with force. Um, so that message is there. But when you see you know, these drills being enacted where it's very clear that uh, they're targeting the Hong Kong protesters because the the rioters being put down in the drills are dressed the same way with the black shirts and the hard hat. Um, that's also a signal for mainland Chinese. These protests have gone from being completely censored, you can't mention them in Chinese social media, to now the government is allowing discussion of it and trying to whip up this nationalistic fervor. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that it ups the ante and you have more and more of an expectation from people in mainland China that their government should do something about this when, as I mentioned, that would be incredibly costly. So this is kind of a way of showing off um, that's going to, to be very low cost for the Chinese government. But they can kind of point to these videos to say, yeah, we're perfectly capable of putting down the protesters. And in that way, it can make people in mainland China happy and it can send a warning to Hong Kong. Yeah, I want to come back to that issue of uh, how the mainlanders uh, relate to Hong Kongers uh, over these protests and the party's fears about um, contagion, a uh, contagion, frankly. Um, that's the worst fear that what's happening in Hong Kong spreads to other parts of China, if not for the same reasons for other sources of discontent, like the protests in uh, Wuhan uh, earlier this summer, which were which had nothing to do with um, or have very little to do with political freedoms per se. But before going on, uh, Prashant, I wanted to bring you in. Um, do you want to add anything about about the possibility um, of the Chinese crackdown? Uh, maybe you could reflect a bit on how such a move might be viewed um, in a around the region, uh, particularly perhaps in um, in Southeast Asia and uh, Northeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Shannon's characterization uh, in her piece is, is kind of a very important one, because as you said, Ankit, I mean, the broad question here uh, and the immediate question is, what kind of intervention could we see from China? And and understanding intervention, I think the, the sort of superficial understanding of that is sort of military use of force. But the fact is, you know, unlike uh, Tiananmen uh, compared to now, I mean, we've, you know, several decades have passed. China has developed a much broader toolkit of measures in which it can respond to these situations. So, you know, Ch Shannon mentioned paramilitary. There's, you know, aspects of influence operations that the Chinese have, have been using already and, and could bring to bear to the table as well. So and there are forms of economic pressure on, on businesses, what the Chinese diplomats are doing internationally. So there's really a whole range of responses that that China has developed that that it can use to really, uh, you know, sort of affect the conversation. I think the, the international part of the conversation is the other thing that I think has, has really changed. If you look at the comparisons people are making to Tiananmen Square, right? So, I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, Hong Kong is, you know, still a global financial hub, the news that you're you're seeing from other capitals in the region is, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of concerns by ordinary people about their own safety, right? Travel advisories being issued by countries in the region, businesses thinking about you know, how safe is it is it to travel uh, under the situation. But I think beyond that, it's been really interesting to see what countries are actually weighing in on the Hong Kong issue and countries that are actually staying away from it uh, out of fear that you know China would view that as kind of intervening in its in internal affairs. I think one quick example I'd cite is the fact that in Singapore, the, the Minister for Law and Home Affairs, uh, Shanmugam, uh, you know, sort of said in, in an interview um, that, you know, contrary to the belief that instability in Hong Kong and China might benefit other countries in the region, 
you know, this is actually a concern for Singapore and other countries as well. If China is unstable, uh, that makes these countries more worried. That's been interpreted in, in a variety of different ways. But one interpretation that we've seen take root is the fact that, you know, Singapore is trying to use this Hong Kong episode to curry favor with China, given the fact that it's had its own issues with China. So it's it's really interesting to see how countries are talking about these issues. And obviously the other one is, you know, and we'll sort of talk more about this, I'm sure, the role of Britain and the role of the United States and other Western countries and how they're responding. Yeah, I think I think that's actually a really good point um, to bring uh, Shannon in. Actually, uh, you know, speaking of internal matters and internal affairs, we've heard that formulation being used by U.S. officials, notably uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross referred to it as an internal matter. Meanwhile, President Trump has had sort of all sorts of tweets about Hong Kong, including suggesting that Xi Jinping go and meet with the leader, you know, walk into Hong Kong and say, I want to meet your leader. And then somehow that was that was going to end the protest. But, you know, more seriously, Shannon, um, can you make sense of the American response or responses? I mean, Congress is doing one thing. The president is doing one thing. The president's advisors are doing one thing. So as has been tradition since January 2017, America does not really speak on, uh, speak in one voice anymore. How is that affecting the dynamics playing out in Hong Kong and, and what might happen next? Yeah, this is another case study in um, the confused nature of foreign policy making under the Trump administration. Um, as you mentioned, Congress, which is, of course, its own separate thing, being the legislative branch, you've seen a lot of Congress people putting out very strong statements of support for the protesters, essentially warning China not to take military action against them and threatening um, to revisit the U.S. Hong Kong Policy Act, which is what gives Hong Kong its special status um, in economic relations with the United States. So, you know, that's kind of been the congressional response, and China has been very upset each time Congress people issue these statements. Um, you've also had a fairly typical response from the State Department, uh, putting out statements, you know, basically saying we value freedom of expression um, and peaceful protests. And, you know, we're watching with concern about where these future developments are going to go. That, again, is fairly standard rhetoric from the U.S. when faced with not that we've seen a situation quite like this, but um, in terms of responding to human rights concerns abroad. And then you, of course, have Trump himself, who is always unpredictable. Um, in the early stages of the protests, he made some very odd remarks, um, essentially saying, as, as you mentioned, adopting the this is China's internal affair rhetoric, uh, in the sense that the U.S., did not and should not have any stake in this, <laughs> that the U.S. didn't care and wouldn't be taking any stance on the issue. Um, he kept saying, I hope it works out, China can handle it, things like that. Um, and you had, you know, even one comment where he actually referred to the protests not as protests, but as riots, which is obviously Beijing and the Hong Kong government's preferred nomenclature for what we've been seeing. So, yeah, Trump has has adopted a a fairly pro-Beijing stance, I would say, when it comes to this issue until very recently, um, where he's now been tweeting that China needs to handle this humanely or else the U.S. is not going to continue with its trade discussions, which is an interesting threat to hear. Um, and he has also, as you said, issued a tweet 
praising Xi Jinping to high heavens and essentially saying that he's perfectly capable of handling this, um, bringing this to an end without violence. Um, so it, it seems like he's finally making clear that the U.S. has an interest in seeing this resolved peacefully, but it's still in a very odd and roundabout way. Um, there hasn't been any firm statement that there will be major consequences if China decided to use force to quell the protests. So you have this weird tension between Congress saying, yes, absolutely, there will be consequences, and the State Department strongly suggesting that as well, but then Trump himself, and as you mentioned, some of his administration officials still seeming way more focused on you know, trade and kind of assuming that Hong Kong isn't all that important for the US and that the US shouldn't get involved. Um, and that, I think, it doesn't play well for the Hong Kong protesters. There's kind of a sense that the United States should be supporting them. There's that assumption based on the United States' past history of taking a strong stance in favor of human rights. Um, you've seen protesters waving American flags and specifically holding up placards that are appealing to President Trump and the United States for assistance. Um, and Trump just seems confused as to why this is happening. As he said in a tweet, he doesn't understand why this is being blamed on the United States. Uh, so clearly there's a disconnect between what the protesters are hoping to see from the Trump administration and what they're getting. Yeah, yeah. What do you make of the reports that, uh, you know, you mentioned the trade talks a little bit, uh, and there's been growing concern that Hong Kong is going to turn into a bargaining chip, um, because um, apparently the, I think Politico had the report that in a June call about trade between Trump and Xi, Trump apparently volunteered that, you know, the United States would do nothing about Hong Kong if she just agreed to uh, give up some concessions on trade. So, you know, to be very cynical about it, is the United States going to start weighing out Hong Kongers in terms of soybeans? Or is this going to, um, you know, remain kind of in the old in the old vein of American policymaking, where when you have something like this and you have human rights, democracy and uh, geopolitical issues on the table, you keep that separate from the economic discussion. But under the Trump administration, everything is in one basket, right? I mean, uh, you know, North Korea, trade, Hong Kong, cybersecurity, everything, everything can be traded for anything else. Taiwan, I think the Taiwanese are watching what's happening to Hong Kong right now with uh, uh, some degree of concern. And of course, with the latest reports of this potential $8 billion fighter sale to Taiwan. I've been wondering, you know, is this actually going to go through or is this, you know, another uh, attempt to use Taiwan possibly as a bargaining chip? You never know with this administration. Uh, and I'm just curious about your sense of how um, how the Hong Kong protests have been relating to the broader trade talks this summer. I, I hate to say it, but I think Trump absolutely would be willing to make that trade. Um, but I don't know if China is willing to make that trade, as odd as it might seem, right? Um, some people have said, oh, that would that's a no-brainer for China. They get to just crush opposition in Hong Kong, and all they have to do is buy some soybeans. But it's more complicated than that, uh, given the way that Beijing has been really fanning the flames of anti-U.S. nationalism, both over this trade issue and over the Hong Kong protests. You know, whenever China says hostile foreign forces and black hands are behind, you know, some sort of domestic unrest, it's very clear that they're referring to the United States without actually saying that. So you have 
the Chinese government and the state-owned media are inflaming this perception that the Hong Kong protests are all the United States' fault, right? And, you know, Chinese people on social media are very fired up. They're very upset about this. Optically, it's not going to look good for Xi Jinping to give up a lot of big concessions on trade, um, even if that means he's getting the United States to look the other way in Hong Kong. That deal would never be publicized for obvious reasons. Uh, you don't want to look like to handle our own internal affairs. We had to essentially sell out to a foreign power. That's just a horrible PR move for Xi Jinping. So I don't really think that that is the way we're going to see this go down, that China is going to offer up some huge sweeteners on trade in exchange for the United States deciding, you know, we're just going to abandon Hong Kong. Um, that's not to say that the Trump administration wouldn't be willing to do that, but I don't think that's in the offering. Mm -hmm. Prashant, um, I wanted to ask you sort of about the Taiwan angle here a little bit. Um, I know I know there's been some mm -hmm. concern, I mean, particularly with the issue of um, military crackdown. You know, one of the answers was that if China does militarily crack down on Hong Kong, it's effectively closing the chapter on peaceful reunification with Taiwan. If it can do that to Hong Kong, it can do that to Taiwan, and will probably set down that path. And obviously, since 2016, we've seen uh, mainland rhetoric towards Taiwan become a lot sharper under the DPP. Um, how do you how do you sort of um, think about what we're seeing in Hong Kong right now, uh, reverberating? across across the strait I, I think it's a, it's an interesting one because this it gets to this issue that we've been kind of talking about on this podcast right about uh, the extent to which there is linkage going on between the Hong Kong issue and, and other issues on both the US side and on the China side right so on the US side I think there's there's been this question under the Trump administration as with um, all of these issues as Shannon mentioned, you know, given the transactionalism or the transactional feel that's at play in the administration, you know, where does a particular issue rank in terms of the order of priorities? And it seems like for Hong Kong and human rights, it's probably less than the issues of trade that the president uh, actually cares about more personally. Uh, but on the China side as well, there's this question of linkage. And it's a question of linkage with respect to if you look at it from how the Chinese would view it, um, you know, I would suspect that with a number of flashpoints um, that they're experiencing. So Xinjiang, the unprecedented uh, pressure campaign that we've seen over the past few years, even though it's an issue that's been going on for a long time. Taiwan headed into elections uh, next year um, and the focus on that aspect of the issue. And then the Hong Kong situation, uh, on top of the geopolitical issues that are presented by US-China rising competition and, and the trade war, um, there does seem to be a lot for China to handle in this situation. But I think the other question is, um, you know, which side perceives that they're in a position of strength, right? Um, and that applies to U.S. and China, but it also applies to how other countries react to the situation. So with Taiwan, it's been interesting. We've seen the foreign ministry and the foreign minister himself actually has chimed in on the Hong Kong protests, uh, actually quite publicly, uh, mentioning that, you know, the the, the Taiwanese people and Taiwan's issue and how they're handling that is not separate from how things are happening in Hong Kong. Um, and that this actually has to do with a lot of issues like self-determination on the part of what Hong Kong is experiencing. But on the other hand, I mean, you you also have seen this issue play out in terms of uh, US-China relations and the issue of position of strength. I think the, the big question, and it's obviously very difficult to answer, um, I think if, if you're sitting in Beijing, 
Um, the issue would be with the Trump administration heading into an election year next year, and the president already showing some signs of actually relenting on some of his earlier measures on the trade front, recognizing that there's some domestic costs, right? For example, delaying some of these measures um, past the holiday period on December 15th, uh, recognizing that there are domestic costs to the president's base. Um, you know, does Beijing see itself as being and playing all of this from a position of strength in a very divided uh, Trump administration that's nearing re-election? Or does it view itself as as kind of reacting to these various pressure points and flashpoints and view it more from a position of weakness? And I, I think President Trump tends to portray that the United States and, and he himself, uh, you know, they're negotiating from a position of strength. But I think that betrays the more complex realities that, you know, I've mentioned and, and that we've all talked about on this podcast, too. Mm hmm. All right. Uh, so to wind down uh, discussion a little bit, um, I suspect we'll be coming back to Hong Kong because it doesn't appear that the protests are imminently about to wrap down. But um, I wanted to ask both of you to just uh, offer some thoughts on how all of this might wind down. Uh, right. So I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the objectives uh, that the protesters have used um, are, are are fighting for have become more diffuse. Uh, and uh, so certainly it's been quite a phenomenon. We've seen about 20 percent of the 7 million people in Hong Kong in some form or another participate um, with participation of over a million uh, early in June when the extradition bill was the core issue uh, at risk. At the same time, we've also seen sort of a diversification of tactics um, in some unfortunate ways. I think there were some pretty um, dangerous scenes coming out of the airport occupation where the possibility of um, protesters engaging in violence appeared to be a little bit higher. Uh, there was a Global Times reporter that was assaulted, uh, leading to a, a huge outcry from the mainland. Uh, there was a riot police member who drew a pistol that thankfully wasn't fired. But, um, you know, the things um, in Hong Kong do stand to spiral out of control. Obviously, we've seen terrible brutality against protesters, people being shot in the face with um, with beanbags. I mean, uh, you know, every time you see this feedback loop where the, the Hong Kong police crack down um, as the protests start to dissipate uh, only to fan the fires of further protests. Um, and all of this, I guess, is leading towards the October anniversary of the 70th, um, the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic's founding, which is a major deadline for China in many ways politically. Um, and, you know, we could we could see these going on for that long. Um, but, you know, given that context, I, I'd be curious to hear from both of you what your expectations are from here. Um, you know, assuming assuming that there isn't a major crackdown, which I think both of you have sort of left as a possibility, but it's not necessarily what you're expecting to happen. Assuming that doesn't happen, how does this actually wind down in Hong Kong? Shannon, do you want to start first? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I, I wouldn't claim to be able to to make a prediction on that. I, I don't think anyone would have expected back in June that we would have seen this. Um, and one thing I want to emphasize is that the Hong Kong government has handled this about as poorly as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. um, if they had responded um, in a more sympathetic manner, um, acknowledged the concerns over the extradition bill, and <clears throat> actually you know demonstrated some accountability to this massive outpouring of opposition in a timely manner i think this all could have been headed off right but you had to the very early initial protests you had very questionable overreaction from the police in terms of using tear gas rubber bullets um, right from the outset <clears throat> 
And then you had the government doubling down and saying that people just didn't understand the bill. And that was why that they they didn't support it, which is obviously very insulting. And so then the protests grew. And as the protests grew, their demands grew. Right. So you went from the single demand of withdraw this bill to now withdraw the bill, look into the police response. Carrie Lamb has to resign. Oh, and we want universal suffrage. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, which obviously the last of those goals is just a complete non-starter for Beijing and thus for the Hong Kong government. But I do think there is some room for the Hong Kong government to compromise. Um, you know, if they were to just formally withdraw the extradition bill, that would go a long way. Also setting up some sort of independent inquiry into how the police have handled this, um, that would also go a long way. And I think that would kill the major momentum of these protests. Now, as you said, they've kind of diversified and they diffused and there are elements that are pushing for far more than is realistically possible at this point in terms of we want to dismiss the entire legislature and we want to direct elections of um, new parliamentarians and the legislative council. Um, But the the problem is that the Hong Kong government has signaled from the very beginning that they think any sort of compromise with the protesters shows weakness yeah. and that it's, it's basically admitting defeat and they are completely unwilling to do that, which is interesting because that is absolutely not the attitude of a democratic government, right? A democratic government is more amenable to these sorts of compromises with the people. That's the attitude that the CCP generally takes towards protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think that is the real core of the issue, is you have this quasi-democratic government in Hong Kong that has adopted a very um, authoritarian approach to the protesters that is very reminiscent of the government in Beijing. And so whether they can remember that they are, in fact, a quasi-democratic government and change their response, or whether they keep doubling down and adopting the CCP tactic in a region that isn't governed the way that the CCP governs China, um, that's going to really determine where we go next with the protests. Mm-hmm. No, that's very well said, Shannon. Um, Prashant, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think the the big risk, um, you know, with, with a lot of these protests uh, that we've seen in the past, right, including in the broader Asia Pacific, whether it's, you know, South Korea, Indonesia, so on and so forth, there seems to be a kind of period of testing where, you know, both sides tend to try to show that they're operating from a position of strength and they tend not to overreact. And there's a process of managing the fallout. But if there's anything that we've learned from these movements is that, you know, as as you correctly pointed out, Ankit, I mean, the, the, the key variable here is the nature of the protest movement itself. I mean, how diffuses it, how the goals change, how the objectives change. And also timing and what are the other major priorities for uh, the government that's that's in power and so if we see this period of testing sort of actually falter it it will likely be through you know the the necessity of as these goals get more diffused and as these protests drag on you know the, the chance of some kind of accident or some kind of sort of deliberate provocation and overreach from either side um is is i think really the the big risk here um, above and beyond the the other aspect of this that we've touched on, which is, you know, how does international response kind of factor into China's own domestic political calculations about what to do? Because I think that 
really is the the kind of key point of change when we're talking about you know the analogies drawn to Tiananmen Square. I mean, the the really the context for China and its development, both internally and externally, is very different from where uh, Tiananmen was uh, decades ago. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know, I mean, I think I think uh, Beijing learned some lessons from the 2014 uh, Umbrella Movement protests. Uh, simply mm-hmm. finding that waiting th- waiting these things out can work, although this time I think the intensity has made that a little bit more of a question. But inevitably, protest movements tend to have some some sort of stamina where really you begin to lose the kind of population numbers that we've been seeing, and you really end up with a very dedicated core that's easier to deal with. So you know, the uh, the cynical response might be for Beijing to uh, simply wait this out and hope that before October, uh, this Hong Kong thing turns into a very different kind of of movement, uh, resulting in a, a a much smaller body. But obviously, I think the relationship, um, as I think Shannon pointed out, I mean, that's really important. The fact that the Hong Kong government is basically behaving as if it is completely just an authoritarian extension uh, of Beijing, uh, which is, of course, what the protesters um, are, are mm-hmm. now are now pointing out. Uh, so, guys, I think I think we'll end the discussion there uh, since we're heading up on 30 minutes, which I usually like to keep this under. But but uh, thanks to both of you for coming on, especially Shannon. Thanks a lot for uh, joining us as our uh, special guest for this episode. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating topic we're going to keep paying attention to and we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I'll add a link to Shannon's um, article on on the protests in, in the show notes. Uh, Prashant, thanks for joining me, too. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, for our listeners, uh, just before you go, I'm going to just include uh, that you should really subscribe to the podcast if you like what you hear. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate that. It helps grow our listenership. And finally, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.